Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me today is... Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show. Devinger Hardware is not joining us this week. Uh, he is off at Computex. So it's just going to be me and Jeff for this opening segment where we talk about what we've been watching. Uh, but then we are going to have Aisha Harris from the New York Times join us for our review of Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. Really looking forward to that. Uh, it's a great discussion. Uh, but before we get to any of that, you can find more of our episodes at SlashFilmCast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. And some of you did email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, and I want to read a couple of emails. Um, so let's start with this email recommendation from Zach from Boston, Massachusetts, my old stopping grounds, who writes in the SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, hey, guys, have you had a chance to see the Hulu original The Act? It's the true story of a mother and her young daughter with countless physical ailments. Childhood cancer, which left her bald. She uses a wheelchair, severe allergies to common things like sugar. Unable to eat orally and must use a port in her stomach. She's the most adorable girl in her wheelchair going around to community events where people have donated large sums of money to help out this single mom and her sick child. The seri- I'm going to skip ahead uh, from this portion of the email where Zach... Talks more in depth about the plot, but then Zach continues. The series is only eight episodes and features masterful, uh, masterful performances. Patricia Arquette and Joey King are the mother and daughter. Note, I'm calling it now. Joey King will receive an Emmy nom for her work. It's stunning. Plus a slam dunk from all the supporting cast members. Chloe Sevigny, Juliette Lewis, plus acclaimed character actor Margot Martindale. Each support <laughs> this tragic narrative and create powerful character moments that will make you want to continue to the next episode. This kind of fucked up material seems like a Dave kind of show, but I think you'd all <laughs> enjoy it. Uh, end quote. So that comes in from Zach from Boston, Massachusetts. I have seen ads for Hulu's The Act. I have not uh, seen the show. It's apparently really well reviewed, but I, like I kind of gauge uh, shows by like how much my Twitter timeline's talking about them. Yeah. Um, and I haven't seen anyone talk about the show, but the act has received really great reviews. I think it has like uh, 90% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. Um, I also have not seen this, but I will follow Patricia Arquette to the ends of the earth. She seems to pick great projects, and she is an extraordinary talent. So Agreed, yeah. agreed. Um, so it has – let me revise my early statement. It has a 74 on uh, Metacritic. But uh, a lot of the critics seem to like it, and so, yeah, I, I think I'll check it out. Um, and uh, I have tried to conceal as much of the premise as possible uh, from that email. So, anyway, um, let's get to this email from Nick from Minnesota, who writes into SlashFilmCast.gmail.com. Uh, so, this is he. Nick wrote this in as a Slash Film Court, but I, it, we, we're not all here, and I don't really think it's a Slash Film Court, so I'm just going to read the email. Uh, Nick writes in, quote, my question for you guys is about showing movies to your children that can spoil movies later on. Uh, mm. Like Vader is Luke's father. I'm going to just assume yeah. everyone listening to this knows what that is. I recently watched Toy Story 2 with my two two and a half year old daughter the other day. I completely forgot that they make a reference to Vader and Luke. It got me thinking about other pop culture references in movies. I remember a Simpsons episode with them making a joke about the Citizen Kane sled. Years later, I watched Citizen Kane and remembered it, which lessened the revelation. Wow. I feel like we shouldn't watch Toy Story 2 again until my children have seen The Empire Strikes Back and experience that revelation for themselves. But am I navigating a minefield and holding my children back from just being a kid? And Oh, my gosh. Uh, I am so grateful for this email. I did not know that about Toy Story 2. Was not did not remember that at all. And I live, David Chen, in constant daily fear of my kids finding out 
that Vader is Luke's father. I <laughs> feel like people that one is one that just comes up all the time. It seems, you know, Luke, I am your father, that kind of thing. I, I get so worried because I you want, want to that show moment. that to your kids. Like you yes. want them to see it for the first time during Empire Strikes Back. I want that moment where I'm sitting next to my son, Jack and my daughter, Zoe, and their minds are blown. I want to see it. I want to be there. I want to preserve that. So yeah, I, I live in daily constant fear because they're, you know, Jack's only two and a half. Zoe is barely one. I got, we got some years to go before I can show this to them and really have it land. Right. So that doesn't mean that they're going to be aware in the world before they're able to really, you know, sit down for star Wars and those years of that gulf in between the, the awareness and the <laughs> ready for the movies is, is going to be a daily uh, fear for me. Okay. Uh, well, I would actually say to uh, our listener that, you know what? Um, I, I'm okay with like the idea of you trying to protect your kids from that Empire Strikes Back revelation. You know, uh, that seems very reasonable to me. But like taking that to its extreme of not letting any pop culture spoil any other pop culture just feels like a losing battle that will cause a lot of anxiety and stress. You know, Jeff, oh, yeah. like, I just, it just yeah, doesn't no, feel I mean, worth really it for, a lot the, of... for either party, like the kids or the parents. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, I mean, you're not going to be able to, like, protect the Citizen Kane thing yeah. or Sixth Sense or, you know, there's going to be a lot of movies that are just just going to get ruined. But for me, Empire Strikes Back is the one I'm trying to build a bubble around my, my kids right, for. I right, just right. want that want that moment. I would say to our listener writing into slash filmcast at gmail.com that like, hey, Nick, you know, um, yes, protect them from the Vader and Luke stuff. But like in general, don't don't hold your kids back from being kids. There's pop culture references anywhere. We were just like in uh, in our Aladdin review, which we recorded before this segment. Like if you watch the original Aladdin, there's like ton. There's like dozens of pop culture references in that, you know. Yeah, he becomes them, Jack Nicholson a couple of times, doesn't he? <laughs> right, yeah. Like most of them aren't yeah. necessarily spoilers or anything, but like yeah. it's just like it's just impossible. It's an impossible uh, quest, I would say. And and here's what I'd say: let your kids figure out how important spoilers are to them. You know, Jeff and I have chosen to live a monk-like lifestyle with spoilers, <laughs> and it is extremely painful and anxiety-producing uh, for for us. Right. But we chose this lifestyle. You know what I mean? That's like right. we didn't. But, we like, walked into it with eyes wide open. With eyes wide open. Most of the time, our eyes are closed <laughs> to avoid spoilers, but our eyes were wide open here. That's right. That's right. And uh, and your kids, your two and a half year old kid, doesn't even probably can't even conceptualize what spoilers are. Like, I just wouldn't <laughs> worry about it uh, for now. You know, um, let let them like figure that out on their own, and don't stress yeah. too much about showing them stuff that's going to spoil things for them. Having um, said that. No, no way my kids watching Toy Story 2 now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that, again, I think that, that one example, very reasonable. <laughs> so, <laughs> good no, luck, No, Jeff. son, it was Toy Story, and then there's Toy Story 3. That's how it goes. That's the order. I'm going to insist that if and when you show your kids Empire Strikes Back, that you uh, record their reaction to it, you know? Oh, I want to, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean... I would love to hear input from our viewers too of of what age is right because I want it to be meaningful. I think even three is probably way too young for it for them to get it. So like four or five probably is the age of Star Wars age, right? 
I think. I don't know. Well, if you have suggestions, tweet at Jeff Canada. That's two N's and one T on Twitter. Um, you can also write into slash from gmail.com. I'll forward them on to Jeff as to which age is, is right for Star Wars. And of course, Jeff, you're going you're gonna to share your kids' Star Wars in chronological order of release of film, right? Of course. I'm not a monster. <laughs> All right. I mean, if I showed them episode one first, then the whole point of keeping away from spoilers for Empire Strikes Back would be ridiculous. Yeah. Because uh, they would kind of know the whole yes. <laughs> Vader is Luke's father idea. right from the outset, huh? Yes, it's going kind of really a Hope, Empire, Jedi, and then whatever the hell. You should else just you start want. with Empire Strikes Back. Then don't even show them Star Wars. Just go straight <laughs> to the horse's mouth. There you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, people on Tauntauns and Hoth, and they're like, "Who? Who are these people?" Yeah. So, uh, th- thanks for writing into slashfilmcastgmail.com. Let's move on into what we've been watching this week. Jeff Kanata, I've been attending the Seattle International Film Festival. The I think it's oh, the 45th yes. Seattle International Film Festival. Uh, and so I'll be kind of talking about movies from that festival the next few weeks. Had a chance to watch Jennifer Kent's newest film, uh, The Nightingale. Now, Jennifer Kent made this movie a few years ago called The Babadook. Have you heard of that movie? Have you seen it? We, we, didn't we review it? Uh, we might have. I, I rated it as my number one movie of that year. Did, were you a fan of that movie? I think you were, right? I did not like it as much as you, but I did like it, yes. Yeah. So this is her much-anticipated follow-up. And I, I had a very – I had an experience that literally only you, Jeff, are the you're the only person I know that would appreciate what happened here. Is I have uh, – I'm obviously, since I'm a huge fan of Jennifer Kent, I was really looking forward to this movie. And – I insulated myself from any details of its plot. Yeah. Uh, didn't watch the trailer. Didn't read it. Like usually when you at a film festival, you would read the plot summary before you decide whether to see a film. But I was like, right. I know I'm going to go see this movie, The Nightingale. So I'm going to go see it. I'm, there's no need to read the plot summary. Um, and uh, I will say that this is a movie that it's a period piece. It takes place in 1825, but I'm not going to say anything else about the movie. Uh, and, I, what happens is I, I make it to the Egyptian theater at, at 9.30 p.m. on, like, a Thursday to go watch this movie. And I have, like, not seen anything from the movie. I've been, like, really – I'm, like, ah, I can't believe I got to the uh, movie theater without having read anything about it. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, the the volunteer from the Seattle Film Festival gets up on stage and starts, like, giving the spiel and, like, don't talk or text and, like, here's who sponsored the screening and so on. And then provides a trigger warning for the film. Uh, oh no! In which and in which she she kind of reveals the premise of the film. And I I, I have no beef with uh, trigger warnings. Like I know some people really don't like trigger warnings. I I, I have no issue with the concept of a trigger warning. Um, but I, I I do think there was a way to deliver the trigger warning that didn't reveal what the premise was. Um, but also, it's a premise that gets revealed like 15 minutes in to the movie or 20 minutes into the movie. Um, and I'm sure I was literally the only person in the audience that was bothered by it. Uh, but I did think that you would appreciate this, Jeff. That like it's like I, somebody's walking <laughs> before you you're going to see Jaws, and they're like, people get eaten by this shark, so you be you be aware, and you're like, what? I didn't know this. People were getting eaten by the shark. It, no, it, it's more like this is a shark movie, you know. Yeah, like, right, right, right. Uh, but uh, again, no issue with what this person did. I think there's a completely it's a completely reasonable thing to do, by the way, for the Nightingale, which has some of the most upsetting sequences I've seen in a film 
in the last few years. And so, and like, that's coming from you. Yeah, that's coming from me. Like, I watch messed up stuff all the time, and yeah. this movie rocked me to my core. Like, it, it is extremely upsetting uh, what this way? movie depicts. Uh, in, I mean, I don't know about it in a good way. I mean, I, I think that like, this did you mo- like the movie? Did you appreciate the experience overall? I think this movie was very good. I think that Jennifer Kent clearly shows that she is like a master of uh, suspense, of thriller filmmaking. I, I still can't wait to see what this person does, uh, Jennifer Kent, in the future. I do think this movie has a script that kind of drags at the end, that kind of loses its way a little bit at the end. Um, but the performances in this movie are astonishing. Uh, some of the sequences in this movie are astonishing. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm a fan. I, I liked it. Um, and I'd recommend it. The, the main character, um, uh, is played by Aisling Franciosi. Franciosi. I'm not, I, I, I'm probably butchering her name, but she plays Lyanna Stark in Game of Thrones. Uh, and, oh, right. Uh, so that's where you might recognize her. But she is incredible in this movie. Um, so I'd highly recommend it. This movie, The Nightingale, will be out uh, in August. It's, it has distribution from IFC Films. Um, and anyway, I just thought you'd appreciate the little thing. But it is extremely yeah, – ups- yeah, go ahead, Jeff. To your point about that, I, I, I've been to quite a number of industry screenings here in Los Angeles. Yeah. L.A. is, of course, a, an industry town, and there are industry screenings. And oftentimes at industry screenings, there will be a Q&A afterwards or some sort of thing. And they will frequently have someone come out and introduce the movie and say, you know, we're so delighted to have so-and-so here. And, and a number of times that introduction has included – a summary of, about, of what we're about to see. And right. I'm like, what? Shut up. Stop. I don't, this is co- the least necessary thing you need to do. You're about to see a movie about a man who is like, what? No, stop. Yeah, uh, oh. I freaking hate that. It's like, I, why we're, we, I've made it to this, the theater. It's like, we're it's about not even to like see this. You don't need to, t- I, <laughs> I'm not going to leave if I don't know what it's about. So like, yes. just, just start it. Yeah. Oh, next time, next time, Jeff, Next time that happens, um, I mean, not at Seattle International Film Festival because I actually respect these people. But if I was actually at one of those press screenings, I would be like, I'd literally put my headphones on or plug my ears and start, you know, making noise conspicuously so that they understood yeah. that what they were doing wasn't welcome. Could the man going la 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 in the fourth row please uh, quiet down? Uh, I see Only the- when you stop spoiling the movie. <laughs> Jeff, you just you just described what my dream looks like, uh, which is that uh, I'm the hero and, and not all heroes were kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I didn't have the the third part where everyone gives you a standing ovation. Yeah, 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 that. yeah, yeah. I can't wait for that. Okay, so saw the Nightingale at the Seattle Film Festival. Uh, expect more coverage of that festival in the weeks to come uh, uh, on my Twitter page, on slashfilm.com, and on this podcast. Also, I had a chance to see Booksmart. Uh, hey, you heard about before this? you go, yeah, before you go on with Booksmart, I just want to say a little little side note about Booksmart. Yeah. Um, and no spoilers for our review of Aladdin, but I will never forgive you for choosing to review Aladdin instead of Booksmart this week. So just, just yeah, putting that out Yeah, I mean, there. you know. Um, I will never, ever forgive you. You, you. Okay. I mean, what Jeff is indicating is that we all choose to review what movies we review. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. generally a three-way decision. Um, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. being said, I accept your judgment. Binge was not here. It was just <laughs> you and me and <laughs> you wrote it in the doc. And so I went to see Aladdin instead of seeing Booksmart. Oh shit. Woo. Are we going to go to school or? Nope. 
What's two plus two? Isn't it crazy that it's the last day of school? Are you kidding me, Samantha? She's got a really cute smile. Go talk to her. Oh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Sharp elbows. Not as sharp as your chin. What? It's the last day. We got you through high school. I need to go over the end of the year budget numbers. Can't we just graduate, head off to college? That should do it, right? We will persist. I can't hear you. I can't soundproof glass. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Nobody knows that we are fun. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. I'm incredible at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on the SATs. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. He broke art rules. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. Booksmart yeah, is uh, a delight. Um, yeah, every, this is uh, – what was that, Jeff? I said everyone's saying that, Dave, and I had two <laughs> hours to spend at the movies this this week, and I went to Aladdin instead. Uh, yeah, well, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, the new film by Olivia Wilde. It's the um, – uh, it's this kind of coming of age story about these two girls played by uh, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver. I just think it's hilarious. It's heartwarming. It's a delight. Uh, it's a, a movie that you should check out. Uh, there's been a lot of like debate online about the performance of Booksmart. I, I think there's a, a lot of things going on here uh, when I look at this debate. One is that. Booksmart is part of a type of film that is going away in uh, in terms of movies that we see released in theaters, which is like low to mid budget character study, character piece, comedy. Uh, there's just not that many of them released in theaters anymore, and if they are released, m- many of them don't do well. Uh, but what makes the performance of Booksmart particularly galling is that it is it feels like such a breath of fresh air in today's movie marketplace. And it is a movie that went up against Aladdin, which is one of the most intellectually bankrupt like property like projects that I've seen yeah. in a theater. It's the opposite of a breath of fresh air. Yes, it, <laughs> it's is, a it is a stifling, you know, a stifling whiff of nostalgia is what Aladdin is. And uh, Aladdin like completely destroyed at the box office this weekend, like, over a hundred million dollars. Um, and Booksmart struggled to hit $10 million. I don't think it even got to $10 million. And that is a huge disappointment. Um, and Booksmart's not usually the kind of movie that opens wide like that. And the fact that they did open it wide in the summer, it it feels yeah. like a counter-programming uh, movie. But you don't counter-program this movie against Aladdin. You counter-program this movie against John Wick or something. You right. know, it's right. it's unfortunate. Un- yeah, really, uh, really unfortunate. But you know, the mo- the movie like it's still out in theaters. Like, who knows? Maybe it could pick up. It's it's just weird. It, it is a movie that gets by on word of mouth, and you don't see these kind of small indie movies, and you know, indie like Annapurna Pictures indie. You don't see these kind of smaller uh, coming of age movies uh, getting wide releases on two thousand plus screens that much because uh, they generally don't do well unless they're accompanied by like a massive marketing blitz, uh, which. I've heard this, you know, everyone has their own like bubble of experiences, but uh, I saw, you know, in the last six months, I've seen like 15 trailers for A Dog's Journey, and I I have not seen a (laughs) single 
trailer for Booksmart in theaters. Um, right. So that's just my own anecdotal. I'm sure you've seen tons of posters, but like for me, that was my experience, and uh, it's hard not. It's hard for me not to connect the two. That said, if you have like th- this is you know you know what Jeff like what th- this weekend has uh revealed right or or revealed even more starkly than it had been revealed revealed before this this memorial day weekend in the states yeah that's right is well is that like all that stuff that goes on online you know it generally just doesn't matter that much in the real world we get that lesson over and over and over again dave and we ignore it because we are in that online conversation but it is it it is something that it has a disproportionate footprint in our minds. Yeah, the, uh, and uh, let me just say, I'm not saying that like online movements and other things like that can't uh, create real change in the world. I'm not saying anything like that, but I'm just saying when it comes to movies, right, and like film Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, it, it, remember when like the Will Smith genie first debuted in theaters? Oh, yeah. The the creators of Aladdin were like, you know what, the original Robin Williams genie was missing, Jeff Kanata. Nipples. That's what that's what that genie needed. Um, when the Will Smith genie debuted, it was widely regarded as terrifying by everyone. Right, like right. one of the most scary images I've ever seen of anything it was Will Smith being a extremely jacked genie who had no bottom half of his body, <laughs> and uh, you know people were like made fun of it, and there were memes about how scary he was. Um, guess how much that impacted the opening of Aladdin. Not yeah, at all. Probably zero. Not at all. Which 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 also points me to how uh, unconfident the makers of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie must actually be with what they've made, because they responded to the same internet backlash and went, "Okay, we're going to push our movie back uh, a year and we're going to fix it and redo all the CG." Disney was like, "Yeah, no, we're going <laughs> to put it out and y'all are going to go see it, and we couldn't care less." So. <laughs> It just shows you like, you know, one set of filmmakers are, are, are confident. They're the Apple. You know, yeah, we're going to take the headphone jack out. Screw you. And the other set of filmmakers are like, what? Huh? No, you don't want, you don't like it. Huh? Okay. Okay. We'll change it. We'll change it. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Internet. I'll just say uh, the only thing I'll say about that, Jeff, is uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily lay that all at the foot of the filmmakers. You know, like there are many people involved with making a movie, filmmakers, producers, studio executives, so on. So, uh, yeah. one day we'll I think read the just full a general st- lack of confidence. Yeah. In that one day we'll read the whole story of the making of Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, and it will blow our minds. But yes, yeah, Sonic has been moved back. They pushed it back to uh, Valentine's Day uh, of 2020. Is that something you're going to take your wife to see on Valentine's Day, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, we already have it down on the calendar, yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah, we have uh, we're picking out our matching PJs that we'll go to the movie in, and it's going to be a whole big thing for us. Yeah, um, is is uh, the divorce also planned for like a couple days after that? <laughs> yeah, well, she's <laughs> planning it. Uh, I I think it's going to be a surprise for me. All right, that's what I've been watching: uh, The Nightingale and Booksmart. Uh, I also saw The Perfection on Netflix, and I didn't like that very much, but I think we can probably save that for another day. Uh, okay. Jeff, what have you been watching? Well, I thought it would be thematically consistent, uh, the fact that we're talking about Aladdin, the fact that we had an email about what to show our kids. Uh, I thought it would be thematically consistent to talk about some of the things that I've watched with my two-and-a-half-year-old because that's basically what I've been watching. Uh, we... <laughs> We uh, so I hope you'll indulge me. This is this is not the usual fare, but it's something I've been thinking about for a while and thought it'd be fun to talk about on the show a little bit. 
we decided that Jack, my son, would not have, and my daughter for that matter, uh, would not have any media, any screens for the first two years of their lives. So um, no screens for two years. That's just a personal decision. Not anybody can make their own personal decisions. That's just what we did for our kids. So Jack has just started watching um, TV shows and movies uh, in the last few months. He's only seen one movie. The movie he has seen so far is Cars. And the reason he has seen the original Cars is because he was inundated with Cars products from relatives. And so he knew who Lightning McQueen was before he ever saw the film. Um, so we saw that movie. But uh, we have been watching a few TV shows. We've Basically a half an hour of television, um, not even every day. Um, so we're, we're kind of doing baby steps into media and screens with, with Jack, but he, one of the things he loves most, uh, we, we emphasize books a lot. And one of the things he loves most are the Dr. Seuss books and specifically cat in the hat. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are as a, a person who probably hasn't read those in a long time, <laughs> Dave, uh, with, uh, with the cat in the hat books. But there are two written by Dr. Seuss, and I don't think I ever read the second one. Did you? The Cat in the Hat comes back? Uh, I think I've read them, yeah. I I'm pretty sure I was a huge consumer of the uh, Dr. Seuss cinematic universe when I was a kid. So I, yeah. I, I feel confident that I've read that one. Well, the first time I read the, the second one, Dr. The, the Cat in the Hat comes back, I didn't like it, but it has grown on me immensely. The, the first as everybody knows, the cat in the hat comes into the house. Mom is away and he convinces the kids to do fun things. And then, uh, it gets crazy. And the uh, thing one and thing two, like mess up the house. And then he has to come in and clean it up at the end before mom gets home. The second one, uh, he shows back up. It's winter time and the kids are shoveling snow and he goes in to take a bath. And when he cleans himself off, he gets a bunch of gunk on uh, the tub. And then he uses a series of things to clean up the gunk and they passes the gunk from thing to thing until finally he throws all the gunk out on the snow. And then he has to use the uh, uh, smaller versions of himself that are in his hat. And then each one has a smaller version of himself in their hat. And they get smaller and smaller and smaller through the alphabet. He has cat A, cat B, cat C, all the way to cat Z. And they I, end I up just want to say, do you know what the best way of consuming Cat in the Hat books is? Is hearing you provide it. a prose description of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's you're no better way to consume time. this. Yes, fair enough. I'm wasting everybody's time. I, I say all of that to tell you about the Cat in the Hat television series that my son has been watching on Netflix. Are you aware of this Cat in the Hat television series? I am not. Well, because he was such a fan of the books, we have started watching the television series. I don't know if it's unique to Netflix or if it existed somewhere before network Netflix. It may be just a Netflix joint. I'm not sure, but the Cat in the Hat is voiced. By none other than Martin Short, which is pretty cool, um, and he gives it his his all. And the 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 um, the series is basically a, a bunch of adventures that the boy and the girl go on. Um, it's um, Sally and Nick. They changed it to Nick instead of Dick, and um, they go on the adventures in the uh, Thingamajigger, which is the the Cat in the Hat's crazy helicopter machine and they learn about the world. They go and they meet talking animals and they go and learn about stuff. Okay. Very well animated. I think the animation is beautiful. It's very much in the style of Dr. Seuss, but colorful and vibrant. Uh, and, uh, 
Martin Short sings in it and and screams his head off. And I'm a huge fan of Martin Short, so I was in. But let me tell you about some flaws with the the Cat in the Hat television series, Dave. Hit me. It is, I think, my kid loves it. It's fine, right? It's fine. But as somebody who is now very familiar with the Cat in the Hat, the idea is of the books that the Cat in the Hat is a malevolent force. He is a chaotic thing that the children must resist. He's not some lovable uh, flight of fancy that they go on week after week, which the television show has completely retro, you know, retrofit him into this role of being. Uh, they rewrote him into this in this this fun, positive learning guy. But what Dr. Seuss was writing is a story about temptation about uh the id of fun and how these children need to resist it and be good and do their chores so fundamentally i think the show is flawed and stupid wow so it betrays the spirit of the cat yes you're saying it completely um what's the word i'm looking for um uh you rewrite history i think well when you rewrite history (laughs) retcon right Retcon? Yeah, retcon. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. Retcons. Uh, I said retrofit, but I meant retcon. Um, and so, and and, and it, it it does this little script where every single episode, the kids at the beginning run into a problem. You know, they are playing in the yard and they run into some issue where they don't know about an animal or a plant or something, and they go, "Oh, I wish we could find out." And then the cat in the hat appears and goes. Did you say you wanted to find out? And they're like, oh, yeah. And he's like, well, if you come with me, we'll go to the land of Goobly Blah and we'll find it. And he was like um, – and he always says, your mother will not mind at all if we do. And then they go and they ask their mother and she always says, no, it's fine. And, they're, and they'll, they say, we can go. We can go. And he says, I know. I know. Every single episode. Every episode exactly the same. Your mother will not mind at all if we do. But in the books, your mother will not mind at all if we do isn't – the truth. It's a lie. He's tempting them with something that isn't true. And the fish in the fishbowl is trying to tell them, no, your mother will mind if we make a giant mess in the house. Okay. And at the end of the first book, the fish is saying, are you going to tell your mom about what happened here? Or are you going to lie to her? That's the end question of the books is what would you do if your mother asked you? That's the question at the end of the first book, okay? So just thematically bankrupt from a Dr. Sears perspective, this yeah. TV show. Also, sounds, it sounds deeply upsetting. It is, as you can tell from the tone of my voice. Also, <laughs> the thing one and thing two are ubiquitous in this television show. They are all, Every episode, there's something that needs to happen where thing one and thing two have to come and help out. They always have to help and make things better, which thing one and thing two do not do that in the books. They make things worse, but whatever. They bump things in the hall. They're they're doing bad stuff in the book. But thing one and thing two, ubiquitous, always there. All of the canon from the sequel, Cat in the Hat Comes Back, completely ignored by this series. It is as if it did not exist. There are no smaller versions of the hat inside of the cat inside the, his hats. There is no uh uh no reference to anything that has happened in the second – as if the second book simply did not exist. And I think if you are making the Cat in the Hat television series, you owe your audience 
a full acknowledgement of the entire canon. And it frustrates me and infuriates me that they are so reliant on that first book for the thing one and thing two, because everybody's heard of thing one and thing two, but the alphabet smaller cats who would be very useful in a number of situations that these kids get into that Sally and Nick are finding themselves into. If they had some, uh, some little tiny cats to ha- handle stuff, it would be very useful. And yet they ignore this. So I'm very upset. Uh, that's my look at children's programming. Mm. Uh, on Netflix. Yeah. I hope everybody found that time well spent. No, because it definitely... I'm spending, <laughs> spending lots of time in my life. As, thinking as, about as these much things. of a colossal waste of time as you might've felt that segment of what we've been watching was, mm-hmm. it pales in comparison to the hours of time that Jeff Kanata has spent actually watching this programming. Right. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, so, so it gives you a little taste of my life. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of wanted to like experience, like uh, let us experience what you experience. Let us know. Yeah. Let us understand where Jeff's mind is wandering these days. Uh, you know what it is, Dave? It's that I sit there and I think these thoughts, and I have no outlet for them. Yeah, because my two and a half year old doesn't care. My wife has learned at this point to just leave the room when mm-hmm. I start on one of these rants. Yeah, and now I have a captive audience. You, I actually think our audience. listeners don't care as well. I'm just going to put that out there, but. Well, but at least they have they have you know a thirty second skip on their devices, and I don't need to know that that's happening. <laughs> uh, but I feel like I'm being heard. I feel like I'm being heard. And, and really, in the end, isn't that what's most important? The answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> um. So that's what we've been watching this week. So what was that? The Cat in the Hat TV series on Netflix. Is that what it was? Yeah. All right. I think it's the Adventures of Cat in the Hat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The the is it. Is it the Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that? Is that what it is? Yeah, Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that. Yeah, they sing about that. And he sings the song, uh, we're going to go, 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 go on an adventure. Thingamajigger is up and away. Go, 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 go on an adventure. Like that. Well, I'm going to tell you, Jeff, if if you're offering me a a window into my future kind of state of mind um, post-kids, it is frightening. It is frightening. Oh, then my job here is done. That that is my goal. Be afraid. Be very afraid. All right. Well, let's move on to our review of Aladdin. Before we do that, uh, we got to thank uh, people who donated to the podcast this week. Uh, we got to thank Christine Garville, Michael Bradford, and then some. And we also got to thank Michael. Uh, I'm sorry, Roger Mendoza who uh, subscribed at the rate of a couple dollars per month. If you want to support us, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Throw some money our way. You can also go to slashfilm.com, use the slash filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Um, One of our listeners also donated and didn't want me to reveal their name. Uh, And they wrote this message. They said, quote, could you shout out Brian and Margaret Stow on their first anniversary? No need to say my name. I'd like to see if they can guess who did it. Thank you. End quote. So that, mm. that comes in from Mystery Listener. Jeff Kanata, well, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story about this. Okay? Oh. Um, you uh, came to our, our wedding, right? Um, I did. The wedding I had about a year ago. And uh, in, in Chinese tradition, uh, some people may or may not know this, but it, it's, it's Chinese tradition that um, uh, in, in place of gifts, people provide red envelopes with money if they can uh, afford to do so. And of course, we would never expect that. But people who want to donate, uh, you know, to our wedding via money are able to do that via red envelopes. And so we had this box at the wedding where you could p- place red envelopes in, and we laid out red envelopes next to it. But 
we made a crucial mistake, Jeff, <laughs> which is we forgot to leave a pen easily accessible. And we forgot to tell people like that they, they needed to write their name on the red envelope. You got unattributed money? So we got unattributed money. <laughs> we had to create a whole like spreadsheet. To be oh, like, no. who actually figured out? And then, like, and then ultimately, we're down to like two to three red envelopes and like eighteen to twenty people who we oh, didn't no. know if they had helped. So then we had to do like this really awkward email situation um, where we That's were like, hilarious. "Hey, you know, uh, we don't care about this, but by the way, did you give us money? <laughs> <laughs> Just so we could like know who to thank? You know what I mean?" Wow. Um, and so all that is just a way of saying to Mystery Donator, uh, this is a terrible idea. And <laughs> you're actually inflicting this huge, like, psychic burden on Brian and Margaret Stow on the event, uh, on the, on the anniversary of their first, we- uh, of their, you know, their wedding. Um, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, you're, don't, don't, you should just, I'm not going to say what you're, I'm not going to out you here on the podcast, but you should reach out to them. And tell because for the think about it from their perspective, think about it from Brian and Margaret's perspective, right? They have this shout out on this extremely prestigious podcast, the Slash Filmcast, and they have no idea who it's from. They got to contact everyone. They got to think it, it could be any. You're discounting the fact that this is exactly what our donator wants. In this which is case, the, the which, delicious glee of 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 uh, conundrum that he's provided for Brian and Margaret on the on the anniversary of their wedding. In which case, I, I I just don't feel good being a party to it. <laughs> I just don't feel good being a party to I it. I think it's brilliant. I think it is a brilliant stratagem. And I wish Brian and Margot a congratulations and a, uh, a good luck in figuring out who did this for you. <laughs> May the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> you should never donate to the Slash Filmcast if it in any way causes you hardship. Uh, but if it causes other people hardship, <laughs> definitely donate to us. That's fine. Um, and of course, uh, I mean, of course, we, we appreciate anyone who donates. If you want to support us for no money, all you got to do is leave a review for us or a star rating at your podcast directory of choice. Uh, every little bit helps. Thanks to everyone who donated this week. Let's get to our review of Aladdin. You stumbled upon an opportunity. I can make you rich. Rich enough to impress a princess. What would I have to do? There's a cave of wonders. Bring me the lamp. Oh, great one who summons me, I stand by my oath, loyalty to wishes three. I'm kidding. Watch this. Watch out! That was from the trailer for the newest Guy Ritchie film, Aladdin, uh, which I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb right now. A kind-hearted street urchin and a power-hungry grand vizier vie for a magic lamp that has the power to make their deepest wishes come true. Of course, it's a remake of the 1992 animated film. You're listening to the Slash Filmcast and joining us today, she is an assistant TV editor at the New York Times. Aisha Harris, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Aisha, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? We're great. Uh, so glad to have you on today. Uh, particularly hey, Dave. Since... Yep. Before you go on, can I read the um, the IMDb description for Aladdin 1992? Please. Please, <laughs> Jeff. 
A kind-hearted street urchin and a power-hungry grand vizier vie for a magic lamp that has the power to make their deepest wishes come true. Wow, thanks. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's illuminating in many ways. <laughs> but I think, I think actually, Jeff, you're pointing to something that uh, we want to just say up front, which is that typically on the Slash Homecast, we have a, a post-spoiler section and a pre-spoiler section. And for reasons that will become obvious, that may have already become obvious after Jeff Kanata read that uh, uh, plot description, uh, starting from the top right now, we will be revealing details about the new... Uh, Aladdin, the the 2019 Guy Ritchie Aladdin. Uh, so we'll, we'll basically be full spoilers up front. Although I think that uh, if you've seen the original, uh, you you are very familiar with the plot beats of this one as well. Um, so Aisha, really glad to have you on, and you have written a piece uh, for the New York Times called "Rewriting the Past Won't Make Disney More Progressive." We're going to talk about that piece in a little bit. But first, let's start with this very basic question about this Aladdin remake, this live-action remake of a beloved animated property, which is, uh, in my opinion, for a remake to justify its existence, it needs to add something new right, to the picture. It needs to say, like, hey, we have a new perspective, we have a new take, uh, we have something that's novel to add to this concept, uh, and that is why you should fork over your hard-earned dollars for this new take on Aladdin uh, instead of just say you know buying uh, the Blu-ray of the old one, do you feel like this new Aladdin justifies its existence, Aisha? What do you think? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It uh, the the problem with all of these Disney remakes, and there have been quite a few in the last few years, including Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, Dumbo, most recently. More to come. Uh, yeah, and there's they're not going to stop. It's just a conveyor belt of <laughs> Disney remakes. Um, but the problem with all of these movies is that the whole point of their existence is that they rely on your um, your nostalgia for the old versions, the original versions. And they hew so closely, but not closely enough. It's kind of like a weird, uncanny valley of Disney. And so you're watching these movies and you know the beats and you know, in fact, they pull some of the like direct lines from from the original movies. So you have Will Smith doing the Robin Williams version of the genie. And while not all of the lines are exactly the same, a lot of them are. And so you're hearing Will Smith say them. And it's just a weird it, it doesn't justify his existence. It makes it seem as though. This movie exists solely to play upon your nostalgia and your um, affinity of the original, and it doesn't really add enough to it. It, it tries to add, I think, um, obviously progressive notes. Jasmine gets her own song, whereas in the original, she only had the um, A Whole New World song, the duet with Aladdin, and now she has her own song, which is, <laughs> which I consider just like a blatant let it go knockoff, but like way less, way less like enjoyable than let it go um and it just it just feels really really overcooked and um just like it's trying too hard and so i can understand why someone who is five or six years old at this moment would see this movie and love it but as someone who was five or six year old when the original movie came out this is just uh it's really embarrassing <laughs> why yeah, does it I exist I feel uh, largely the same, and I think that uh, I, I was shocked at how blatant 
uh, some of the ripoffs were. Uh, you talked about scenes of dialogue or lines of dialogue that were similar to the original. And there are actually like specific shots and moments that are borrowed from uh, the original film as well. Like, for instance, uh, so I, I think many of the songs are borrowed from the original film. Um, the, the kind of songs are ext- like uh, if you look at the soundtrack, they're mostly the same tracks, although there are a couple of changes here and there at the edges. And, and the lyrics have been revised to be less offensive. Uh, mm-hmm. But the uh, most particularly in Arabian Nights, like those those lyrics are no longer uh, quite as objectionable. But like I think the thing that really struck home to me was like there's this moment in after uh, a whole new world, right? When they both sing that song, and uh, Aladdin's dropping off Princess Jasmine at her balcony, and the magic carpet kind of does a little like nudge to Aladdin's feet uh, to kind of like knock her you know, knock him into like her arms so that they'll kiss or whatever and uh that is the exact same shot and moment from the original animated film yeah uh, and it's just like wow they really are borrowing extremely liberally from from the original film uh for this one uh so yeah i i, I largely agree with uh your your take there aisha although i do have some responses to it but first I want to get to my colleague Jeff Kanata and hear what you have to say about Aladdin. Jeff? Well, Dave, I guess you could say my feelings about this remake of Aladdin are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Uh, we should like explain to Aisha like what this whole limerick situation is. Because, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. For a while now, Dave has ruled this podcast with an iron fist, and he decreed <laughs> that no episode shall be put on the internet without at least one limerick. And so it has fallen on my shoulders to try in some way to assuage his his terrible, terrible anger. My, my and, Jafar-like uh, wrath, according yes. to Jeff. Just know <laughs> yeah. that like none of this story is actually true, but Jeff, go ahead. You're a limerick for a I mean, I, I'm not going to defy him because he'll get very angry, but it's, <laughs> it's all true. Okay, my limerick. Okay. <laughs> Even if somehow you missed, the original Aladdin resist the urge to discover this terrible cover. There's no reason for it to exist. Nailed it, Jeff. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. It. Yes. Um, it, it is. A, it's a cover band. This is a cover band. Well, actually, let me back up. Um, I was very chagrined. Aisha, to hear that you were five when this movie came out in 1992. <laughs> Actually, because... now that I now that I say it, I was four. But yes, uh, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Sorry. <laughs> I uh, was in high school, uh, and I was working at the movie theater. One of my very first jobs, my first the my first job where I went into a place and worked. It was at a movie theater, and I loved that job. And when Aladdin came out in 1992. It was an event, and I immediately and wholeheartedly fell in love with that movie. And when you work in a movie theater, you see a lot of movies, and you tend to go into movies during your breaks, and you go to movies at night after your shift, and you just have this free pass to just constantly be seeing movies. This is before, of course, the magic of the Stubbs A-list. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so I saw this movie countless times, and portions of it just because I would go in on my break, if I had a 20 minute break, I would just go into Aladdin and sit down and watch it with audiences. And I memorized whole passages of it. I knew every song. I, I loved this movie. This is my still my favorite Disney animated film to this day. So I have a lot of affection for this 
this property. I really loved the songs. I loved Robin Williams. I, I, I adore this movie. Uh, at about, I don't know, 10 minutes into this movie and not even, uh, when we're, you know, got to step one, you know, what got to keep one step ahead of the bad mm-hmm. guy is one jump ahead of the, and we're doing the exact choreography from the movie. <laughs> and, and it was and so slow so compared slow. to the original. Yeah. It, it felt like, I mean, no offense to the talented performers and creative people who are involved in these things, but it felt like the thing you see at Disneyland that yes. they perform at 12 and two and four and six, you it know, felt like a community uh, theater version of <laughs> the 1992 movie Aladdin, right? Yeah. Yes. The thing that is so insane to me is that every decision in this movie seems to be made with the eye to making it as close to the, to the cartoon as possible. Our main character uh, you know, the, the, the kid who plays Aladdin, it, he has lots of hairspray in his hair so that his hair looks exactly like the drawing of the hair in the cartoon. Uh, everything seems to be done with an eye to making this as close a cover of the cartoon as possible. And on one hand, I kind of understand that. Like, that's that's the game we're playing here is look, it, it came to life. Just like when you go to Disneyland and you go into the the theater, it comes to life before you. But also, who cares? The it is it is less than every at every step, every step of the way, it is less than the the action choreography, the singing, the dance choreography, the set pieces, every single thing. Because we're doing a a live action. Um, photo real CGI version of all this stuff does not make it as good as the drawings of 40 elephants, you know, all, all that stuff. It's less than it is a worse version. It is going to see the, you know, the Beatles cover band at the state <laughs> fair. That's what this feels like. And, uh, I, I mean, I literally 10 minutes in, I was like, oh my, there's two hours of this on its way. <laughs> it is like two a, hours good, a full, <laughs> yeah, it's a full 30 minutes longer than the original film. Yeah. Yeah. Which is insane. And, uh, all of that isn't just that extra song. <laughs> Although I, you know, Aisha, that song felt like such a crass bandaid of like, okay, what, first of all, the style of the, of the song, as you said, is completely uh, d- dissonant to the rest of the score, to the rest of the, the book of this movie. It is, or this property. It, it doesn't feel like it was written by the same people. It wasn't. So there's that, but also it doesn't even, it's like they didn't even try. They're like, we're going to make a current pop song, you know, in the style of let it go. And it's also this weird, you know, post me Too like lip service to, to that, which it, it just feels so, pandering and bad and and it's not even she like sings this thing about having taking her speech away and not being able to talk and not being able to and it's like they're commenting on the first movie in a weird way but also in this movie it only happens in the form of a dream sequence that isn't real anyway and it's like well you it's not any better that she just thought this you know so anyway she, i she has I, a song about not being speechless uh, and she sings it loudly to literally no one in particular because she goes, because yeah. it's all it's all in her head apparently yeah. in in the in the it reality is, of the film yeah she's it's letting it go yeah. 
<laughs> okay. Well, having said all of that, I want to tell you a story about me in two acts. Two acts. Okay. okay let's do it. Act one. <laughs> I walk out of the Aladdin remake going, what a waste of my time. There's no reason that should exist. I'm going to write this limerick about it. Uh, this is, this, I can't believe this doesn't even feel like a Guy Ritchie movie. Like if nobody told me Guy Ritchie directed it, I wouldn't, this is, this is, they should never have made this. They should never have made this act two as literally moments later, as I am walking to my car in the movie theater parking lot, I pull up in Twitter and I see a tweet, which reads new Akira movie has Taiki Watiti as director. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can't wait. They better keep, they better be authentic to the, to the style of Akira. So that story is, is meant to tell you what a hypocrite I guess I am hmm. because I got really excited about uh, Taika Watiti directing a live action version of Akira literally moments after I was like, there's no reason that movie should have been made. So, <laughs> All right. Well, well you really, really took me on a journey there, Jeff. Um, but <laughs> Uh, but it, it, it's like it was like a bang bang uh, of me going. This movie should not exist. Oh, this movie should definitely exist. And I just felt <laughs> I can't believe that juxtaposition that even to myself seemed ridiculous. Well, Jeff mentioned this whole song that Jasmine sings and kind of its uh, its attempt to appear progressive and woke. And Aisha, I'm really glad you 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 actually had published an article in the New York Times today about this. Um, and I'm just going to read a, a quick. Uh, paragraph from me here you said quote sitting through reheat after reheat of animated movies from my childhood i found it difficult to take comfort in the unsubtle attempts to correct past sins the shoehorned in progressive messages only call more attention to the inherent crassness of disney's current exercise in money grabbing nostalgia end quote uh so i guess i'm curious like if you could summarize uh what is your beef with this this movies approach to progressive gender politics uh well (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's like like, where do i start well it's not just it's not just gender politics it's it's politics in general because if you look back at this movie when it first came out in 1992 and granted again i was four but i know that when it came out it it also had its own controversies in terms of the way it depicted middle eastern people and arab people and, you know, most of the voice cast was was made up of white people. Um, <laughs> I remember that the guy who played DJ's boyfriend on Full House played was the voice of Aladdin. <laughs> um, so that's a thing. And then also, like, there was the well, whole that was a lot of that was a lot of TV cast comprehension for someone who is for Aisha. <laughs> Look, I watched so much TGIF and also so many Disney movies. I I really I actually even though I was four, I remember when Aladdin came out wow. very vividly. Um, but and so there there were a lot of politics going on there, and I think that when you look at this movie and the way in which they try to um, redo, um, like re redo their past, Disney tries to redo their past and pretend that like not so much pretend they acknowledge that everything in the original movie was kind of problematic, but in the way in which they use these new movies and it's not just Aladdin, it's also beating the beast. It's Cinderella, it's jungle book, it's Dumbo. 
where they they realize these are some like very problematic properties. And so now that they're trying to just take all your money and um, by invoking all this nostalgia, they're like, well, we obviously can't have like King Louis be this like minstrel type of, uh, you know, monkey in in uh, the Jungle Book. So we're going to have like Christopher Walken voice him instead. He doesn't sound anything like a black person. <laughs> um, or you have Dumbo where they invent this character, this uh, young girl character who all of a sudden is like really into science. And this is still set in like the 1920s, 1930s. And it, like if she existed today, she would be totally into STEM and all these other things. But she's like lives in this time period now where she can just say, um, everyone's just like, oh, you can't be a scientist. And she's like, well, I don't want to be a circus performer. I want to be a scientist. I'm a very smart girl. You have all of these different um, ways in which Disney is trying to shoehorn in these very modern progressive um, uh, thoughts. And it feels unnatural it feels weird it's like you can't pretend that you had decades upon decades of racist sexist uh even to some extent homophobic stuff in your films and from the past and then pretend that it's all good now because you're remaking these movies for a profit strictly for a profit with no sense of artistic sensibility whatsoever like if you're going to make a movie today, you don't ask Tim Burton to make it. Like, look, Tim Burton <laughs> hasn't been relevant in a good, like, 15 to 20 years. So, like, if you're going to make that kind of movie, you're not doing it for any sort of artistic value. You're doing it for money and because people know that property. Um, and so, essentially, that is my biggest problem with it, is that it's not just the fact that they're remaking these movies, because that's one thing. It's the other thing that they're trying to get brownie points for like acknowledging that in the past they've done some really problematic stuff and now they're going to try and do it over. And when they do it over, it's really just like not well done. It just feels unnatural and um, just very forced in a way that if they made other like if they kept doing the things that they've done with Coco, Moana, Black Panther if they kept making original things, it would feel much better. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question though? Uh, just to play devil's advocate here. I think it's safe to say that if they had made this movie and they didn't include the, you know, or they made jungle book and they didn't do, do the, it, yes, it, it feels like lip service. Yes. It feels shoehorned. Yes. It feels inappropriate and weird and pandering. Uh, but I also feel like they would get criticism if they did nothing. Do you think that there is, a solution beyond don't make these movies? Is there a way to do, to revisit these properties and try to execute? I mean, we can set aside the idea that maybe just remaking all these old things is a bad idea altogether. But if, if we say as a given, they're going to do it, is there a way that you can envision that would be effective and, and feel better? No, I don't think they figured it out yet. Because they've been doing this for years. And to me, it all just feels, and maybe it's a combination of not just them doing it, but also the way in which they market these films. So it's not just them making, you know, Cinderella is much more, when they redo Cinderella, she's like all about women's empowerment. But like, when they talk about it, when they market it, when they have, you know, the the actors and all these other people talking about it, it just feels very like, Oh yeah, by the way, we also are going to make sure that like 
we know that the the original Cinderella was really screwed up. So now we're going to make sure that she's like actually, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren 2.0. Like, I don't know. It's just weird. And I don't. <laughs> and so I don't think there's a solution other than just keep putting your efforts towards making original movies. And they've been doing that. Like they've done Coco, they've done Moana, they've done Big Hero 6, they've done all of these movies that have been original versions of whatever they are. And well, I think I the, think the that, example we were talking about before the show began was like Frozen and how you felt like this right. uh, Speechless was a, like a ripoff of Frozen. Um, it's a total ripoff. Right, but but not as enjoyable and not like – I mean Frozen at least uh, let it go – came at a crucial moment in that character's arc, right? And, like, it, it kind of signifies that character making this crucial realization about herself and her powers. Uh, and in this movie, I feel like Speechless is not nearly as uh, effective a marker of this character's growth in the course of the story. Um, well, that's the problem, is that, like, when you're starting from scratch, it's much easier to... Like, the problem with these movies is that they're relying on us knowing the original property. Right. And so when you're adding in these songs that, like, to me, the, um, you know, as a millennial who grew up watching these movies and, like, I own I own Aladdin, the original, on DVD. I own Lion King. I own, I own all these movies. And because it's so ingrained into my, 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 um, my psyche – there's no way that this new movie is going to replace that. And so with something like Frozen or Coco or Moana, like those are working from a very new template. And so there's not this like leftover feeling that you have to get over of like what the original was supposed to be. You're working from a very original template and you can, you know, do whatever you want with it. Yeah, if if I were to diagnose the problem, I would say it's it's a fewfold. I mean, you've already pointed to the fact that like we we probably just shouldn't be remaking these movies to, in the first place because they're intellectually and to some degree artistically bankrupt. But putting that aside, I think like you can imagine a world where they ripped up the entire script of Ala- like nineteen ninety two Aladdin and like told an entirely different story with different characters and different geopolitics, in which a woke version of Princess Jasmine might actually make more sense, right? And and where that character's uh sense of empowerment might play a more critical role in the plot as opposed to here when I actually think she kind of makes things worse when she um when she like <laughs> speaks up after that song she's like no like she she says to like the her head guard like you have to follow us and then he's like okay I will and then that's what prompts Jafar to be like well then I need to be even more powerful you know like the, uh-huh. it, it actually like makes things worse so I can imagine a scenario where if uh, if you if you tore up the entire template as you called it, Aisha, where like maybe it could be better, right? Um, but that's certainly not what we got here. So, right. Um, right. So anyway, in any case, I would highly recommend uh, everyone check out this article that Aisha wrote at NewYorkTimes.com. Um, uh, rewriting the past won't make Disney more progressive. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, I, I want to just share a couple of thoughts on this piece. Uh, on, not on this piece on on the film, and. Uh, I totally 100% agree with everything y'all are saying, and I think that this movie is really bad and that, it, like I said, it feels like a community theater or like going to see a live-action version at Disney with all the kind of cheesiness and uh, and lack of 
production value that that would entail, even though this movie cost $180 million. Um, it, it feels like a shell of its former animated self. Uh, I, I think for me, the thing that is most hilarious is this is such a weird detail. You know, sometimes you notice weird details in movies, but the thing that's most hilarious is Aladdin's uh, like little red vest that he wears during the course of the film. <laughs> like at the end of the movie, that red vest comes back and it's like in the exact same like pristine condition that it was at the beginning. And it just is like, it just struck me that, oh, we're just watching it. Like people play dress up. It's and, cosplay. Yeah. It's it, cosplay we're watching people cartoon. cosplay Aladdin, right? Yeah. That's what it felt like. Um, yeah. but yeah. despite all of that, the, the thing that I can't get away from is that the original Aladdin did have a lot of problems. You mentioned some of them, um, Aisha of like the casting. It was all like, I, I did not realize how problematic the concept of Agrabah was until I watched this movie. I, I, I mean, I know that like the 1992 Aladdin has been around for quite a while, but like the idea that. Uh, these white people just made up like this fictional world of like oh it's the Middle East and it's kind of it's kind of like Arabian but it's kind of also Indian and it's kind of like to some degree Asian you know like they, they just made up this place and then populated it with uh, with these um, brown people voiced by white people uh, that there's kind of some like you kind of can cast some side eye at that um, and. Uh, the one thing this movie does do to its credit is that there are way more um, people of you know, from that part of the world that are populating the roles uh, in this film, and I think that is to its credit. You know like, that that these people like maybe the, yeah, this movie has made you know hundreds of millions of dollars already as we're recording this. This will likely lead to more opportunities for many of the people involved in the film, and that we'll get to see them in other things that are hopefully better than this. And so, like, I, I think, like, from the perspective of showing you this world as populated by people actually, you know, from that part of the world um, and creating more opportunities for people of color, I do think that the movie has some value. And that is literally the only thing, a good thing I can say about it. Um, uh, everything else you said applied. I, I do want to read really briefly from this review that one of our listeners uh, sent to us of this movie, um, Anissa Khalifa who is a Canadian-American writer of Pakistani descent, wrote uh, about this movie at her blog. And she wrote here, quote, There are limits to how far an upgraded version of Aladdin can go under the leadership of a white male director and writers. Disney doesn't seem to realize that this is also the biggest problem with the original version. Switching out the word barbaric in the opening song doesn't erase the fact that we're still seeing a vision of a fictionalized Eastern kingdom through the eyes of people who likely have no cultural context for Islamic or Arab cultures, except for the hundreds of racist depictions that Hollywood has produced over the last century. Mostly what I saw in this movie was a huge missed opportunity. A woman of color, an Arab, and or a Muslim woman should have been leading this team. People who know these cultures should have worked on the costume and production design. Instead, we get an Agrabah that is a mishmash of Orientalist light imagery that is trying to eat its cake and have it too. There's real Arabic script on some documents and English on others. Clothing that looks Moroccan and other dresses that look like they were made in India. A culture that sort of winks and nods at Islamic roots, but is wiped of that identity in any real way. End quote. And I think like our uh, modern movies have shown that 
that you actually can do something like the idea of Agrabah. And the best example is Black Panther, uh, which had lots of people of color behind the scenes and made this, uh, you know, Wakanda is not a real place, but they made this uh, fictional country that was kind of a celebration of many aspects of African culture. Uh, and it felt like that could have happened here, and it didn't. Uh, and that is yet another missed opportunity that, that uh, Aladdin has inflicted on the world. So I, uh, I, I'm very here, – here's the thing. Here's the thing that like really I'm struggling with, Aisha, which is uh, if, if I had a kid today – would I show them this version of Aladdin or the 1992 original? You're right? struggling with that? I, I, I am really? struggling because because this movie, to some extent, represents um, some values that I appreciate, right? Which is that you want um, to, to have – like, I, I don't know that I want – like, the original – as we already discussed, the original 1992 version has a lot of problems. It's not perfect. Um, it, it is very problematic in the way it was uh, made and the way it depicts uh, Arabian culture. And so this one is a little better. It's not great. You know, so question for you, Aisha, like, which one would you show your kid? And I, no judgment at all. Uh, I, Jeff, it sounds like you already know your answer, but what yeah. are your thoughts, Aisha? Uh, absolutely. I would show them the 1992 version. <laughs> Look, uh, as, <laughs> as someone who grew up watching all the problematic versions of all these remakes that have come out. Um, and, you know, I still, I love Dumbo, even though it has uh, some, an actual Jim Crow, like an actual Jim Crow in it. And it's <laughs> absolutely racist. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think there's some value to showing children what it used to be like and and explaining to them, giving them to t the tools to understand what's problematic about it while you're showing it to them. Like I, when I was a kid, my parents showed me, my dad um, had me watch all the really racist Bugs Bunny cartoons that existed. And, you know, um, him wearing blackface, um, him doing yellow face, like all of those exist. And I watched them and I was able to know that like, while these were part of the culture, it was also very problematic. And so to me, I'd rather show them a good version of a very problematic thing than a really shitty version. Sorry, I don't know if I can curse. A really yeah. crappy version <laughs> of a thing that has been like completely sanitized in a right. way that like doesn't feel true to like the way it like the way the real world works. Um I and I and I do think like the problem with this new Aladdin, unlike Coco and Moana, and I can't completely speak to this, um, but from what I understand is that like Coco and Moana and all these other recent Disney animated ver movies that have been original versions of uh, those movies have used actual, like they've had a lot of behind the scenes people who served as consultants. They vetted it. They went through a lot of processes to like make sure they got it right. Right. And as far as Aladdin goes, like you have Guy Ritchie directing it. Um, and then, you know, there's there's also been a lot of controversy around this version. They had to cast a white guy, Billy Magnuson, who like wasn't in the original version. There was no white person in the original version. And he doesn't even really do anything in this new version. He's like there for maybe like two scenes and he like has this weird laugh and that's all he does. Like... Why did the, why did we need a white person in Agrabah? Like, couldn't well, they just have 
a, he's from Scotland, I think. I, I, no, I will. T- I will say this: not a real country. It's like Scon Scotland. They, they, they say it over <laughs> and over. It's not Scotland. It sounds like Scotland, but it's not Scotland. He's like oh. a fake prince. <laughs> I will. I will say this: that the moment when Billy Magnuson opens his mouth is when I realized what. Uh, what kind of movie we were watching here, which is essentially a movie that I did not need to take seriously, right? Like, it, right. this is like, <laughs> h- h- that performance is so ridiculous. And I, I, I'm a fan of Billy Magnuson. I think he was great in, like, Game Night. I think he's a great actor. Yeah, Whatever direction really he was getting, it's like, th- that is a good way to make me emotionally check out of this film, was whatever he did in this movie. Because it was, it was terrible. It was, like, extremely... I mean, and of course, like, that's the whole, like, it's not like this is a huge, like, there's a lot of gravity to Aladdin to begin with. You have this genie character who's like yucking it up the whole time. But I, I just thought I can't like, that was the moment when I was watching this movie that I'm like, I can't believe I'm spending time watching this movie was when he opens his mouth and like delivers that accent. I was just like, this is ridiculous. Um, can I, can yeah. I ask a, a question? I'm sure I'll regret, um, <laughs> uh, you know, dumb gen x white guy here so you know take take my question with a grain of salt but it comes from a place of uh genuine curiosity and uh uh desire to be educated uh but i i totally feel you guys on uh the the representation as far as voice acting in the 1992 version i i 100% get that uh your criticism of agrabah specifically dave though I, I understand what you're saying, but I also feel like it's it's like thinking that the city in Sleeping Beauty represents white Anglo-Saxon culture. It's it doesn't. It's not intended to. It's it's not. It's it's a weird fairy tale land that's fake. It's uh, and I get that it lifts things from this culture, but it's. I think the idea that children watching it are being educated about you know Islam or uh, you know, Middle Eastern culture from this movie, I think is maybe overstating it, but I, I guess I wrong. would ask you like mm-hmm. how many uh, movies can you name that depict uh, Muslim culture from 1992 before? And how many movies right. can you name that depict, you know, whatever Victorian or no, medieval I, culture from that is a hundred percent fair, but it's a completely different issue. Right. But, I, I think that you're, you're saying, I'm saying that it's not the movie's responsibility to educate its audience on, uh, a culture that it is not actually representing. It's not representing that culture. It's showing you this fictional place that is based uh, on motifs of that culture. And I, I would say it's the, it's the responsibility of the viewer or the parent of the viewer to explain that that's not an actual place and not an actual thing. Uh, just like sleeping beauty's castle isn't an actual place and an actual thing. Uh, I mean, that doesn't happen though. Yeah. Like, the the, the, the well, problem is that we live in America, and the like white Anglo-Saxon culture is the dominant culture, and so like yeah, you can have Sleeping Beauty, but that like that's automatically not considered like representative of all, of all white people. Whereas when you have something like Aladdin, that is the only version that most people will see of like Middle Eastern culture, or it's like, if you watch any movie from the nineties starring Nicolas Cage or like John Travolta, the, the villain is usually someone of Middle Eastern descent. Like it, it's just, the, the, no, I, 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 I agree cool. that that's, that's bad. I don't think that's, I'm not defending that that is a good thing. I'm, I'm just saying that the idea that, um, I, again, 
I freely admit I may be off base here, and I'm not trying to uh, defend Aladdin. I just think um, it would be one thing if they, you know, yeah, there needed to be more movies that had places that were more varied uh, in the world and were more authentically depicted. I 100% agree with that. And I wish we could go back in time and change that. I hope it's changing now. It does seem to be that the culture is shifting and we're getting more stories from more diverse voices. And I am in support of that. And I think it's great. But I, I just think it's a little bit different when it's a completely fictional place that's based on it, it. The movie is presenting itself as this fairy tale that is on a map of a place that doesn't exist. So I, I don't know. I just think that there's a distinction there, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, I, I disagree. Um, and, and I think Aisha puts it well, which is that like those conversations weren't happening, you know, like it, no one sat me down after true lies and was like, Hey, uh, Crimson Jihad is actually not a, not the proper depiction. Like that's actually not what Muslims are like, you know, like, but, but, the- but we're not, I'm not talking about what, what the world was like in 1992. I, I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to answer the question. Maybe I didn't frame that correctly, but my, I'm trying to answer the question that you phrased, which is, do you show this to your kids now or do you show them the new version now? Right. And, and I, think, I, and I think the idea ahead. of like showing the, here's the thing, the 1992 version is a great work of art, in my opinion, right? Like, and and it's far better work of art than this movie. And um, I, I, you know, you know, Aisha, you actually have, like have helped me come to terms with this, which is that like the solution is actually both of you, right? Like the solution is show your kid the better work of art, but like explain the context, context. around it. Yeah, context, one hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But that yeah. didn't but I, happen back then, Jeff. That's the thing. Yeah, like when I, it came I, I, out, I'm sure for some people it did. I'm sure for some. I mean, I'm yeah, sure there's some um, families the, that came the extremely home from a- vanishingly small minority. It did. But like for the vast majority yeah. of people, that's not how it went down, and so like uh, th- that ha- has created a lot of pain for people, and uh, so I don't think it's a slam dunk case that like that's the one that should be representative, right? Of like what this story is. Um, sorry, Aisha, you're going to say something. No, well, I mean, I also had to come to this conclusion by myself. Like, I'm I'm a Black American. I grew up like my. I remember vividly watching this movie and listening to the soundtrack with my parents, but like they never sat me down and said like, there's problems with this movie. Like I had to figure that out for myself. Like I, 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 and I think that even today that's not, it's very rare for parents. Like I think people obviously are more uh, um, attuned to these sort of things, but I think it's still very rare, especially if you're talking about stuff from 20, 30 years ago, for people to like say, all right, I'm going to show this to my kids and then we're going to actually talk about it. Like, I don't know. I, I think we, we can put some, some of the onus on the parents, but we also like, we can't let Disney off the hook. Yeah. Like, Jeff, I, I appreciate I, I, Let me just say, let me just say this in some summary, because I, I, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I, I do think maybe because I was older than either of you, when I saw this movie, there was no moment where I thought if I took a plane to the Middle East, I would get out and see this. Just like there's no, there was no moment when I saw Sleeping Beauty where I thought I could wind up somewhere and see Sleeping Beauty's castle. I just, it didn't occur to me at any point that this was a vision of a thing that existed in our world. That's all. Well, I, I appreciate that that's the case for you. And I appreciate that you are like asking the question in the spirit of like educating yourself and learning. When you're also putting it into the context of like, we're coming off of in 1992, the Gulf War, and then ten years later we have nine eleven. Like, it's all very uh, icky. Like, it, it, these are the things that you just kind of 
you don't even realize you're 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 um, absorbing these ideas about the way certain people are. And it's also just like this is a whole problem of Disney and just being a child in general of like I watched The Little Mermaid over and over and I I had like a lot of insecurities about the way I looked because of The Little Mermaid and like Beauty and the Beast. And these aren't things that like I was very cognizant of at the time, but like you absorb these things. And so I think that like a lot of it is just a subconscious sort of um, way in which you take these types of movies in. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot going on. I, I, I appreciate that you are uh, open-minded, Jeff, and trying to like educate yourself and and so on. I, I would say that um, the danger of what Disney did with the 1992 Aladdin is, uh, you know, as I should put it, like, peop- y- yes, I understand that you might have like watched this and not thought that like Middle Eastern people were barbarians, which is a line that is actually like in the original Arabian Nights song. Um, but I think a lot of people probably did. And I think uh, our president of the United States is currently showing that there is a lot of uh, money and fame to be gained from Islamophobia in 2019. So the idea that like movies like this aren't impacting people and culture isn't impacting people, I just – I do not agree with. So um, anyway, e- even if it is quote-unquote fictionalized, like the idea that like uh, – I-, I don't think people are as cognizant of the difference between – uh, what is in movies and shows like 24 versus reality as uh, we would all like. And and that is a danger that uh, we should just be vigilant about. So I think it's fair. Yeah. Putting that aside, uh, before we wrap up, we got to just say a few things about some of the performances of this movie. Oh, yeah, we haven't even talked about Will Smith yet. We haven't talked about Will Smith. So like, Aisha, what did you think of Will Smith? Did you think he took on the mantle of Genie in a decent way? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um look, I love Fresh Prince Will Smith. I love um certain iter- iterations of Will Smith. Um this felt like he- Will Smith is trying to be Hitch Will Smith, which I love, but in the shadow of Robin Williams right. and it's impossible to fill that shadow. Like Robin Williams was perfect in that role, you know, famously they wrote a bunch of dialogue for that movie and then he just improvised a bunch of it. And then they had to like redo some of the animation to go with his um, improvisations. Um, And so, you know, Will Smith does some of the direct lines from, of Robin Williams and it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Like it's enormous power. (laughs) Yeah. The itty bitty, like I I couldn't do the, so so much of this movie like didn't work and will smith was a huge part of it and the top knot was weird and him being blue was weird and yeah it's just not good jeff canada (laughs) your assessment on the will smith performance Uh, i mean i agree with aisha almost completely I, i also agree with the point that she made that it's an impossible task like there's no there's no winning this. <laughs> there's no, you know, you, you get that gig and I'm sure it paid well, but there's no universe in which, you know, just sort of aping Robin Williams works. There's no universe where doing your own take works. And he sort of landed in the middle of those. He's doing his own take, but also aping, which feels just, it just, it just, it's a lose, lose in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I like him and I think he's charming. He really brings charm to it. He's absent for a large chunk of this movie, too. And the movie doesn't even come to life until he shows up. So 
yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's impossible. And he he brings his A game, I guess. But it just, yeah, it, it can't doesn't work. It can't work. But Prince Ali is also just like that's supposed to be. Well, I guess friend like me and Prince Ali are like the genie showcases. But like Prince Ali was so slow, and yeah. I I've, I've noticed this with all of the Disney remakes is that like they make all and maybe it's a fact of like the animation is like with animation you can just be really fast with things and like go from beat to beat in a very quick manner. But like even with a, um, the last, the Beauty and the Beast remake, when they did um, Belle, that opening song, like that song felt slow. I feel like all of these live action remakes are just making these very classic buoyant songs seem very slow and dragging in a way that's like not helping their case. Mm. I think it's also a, a fact, a part of the fact that like, Robin Williams' performance as Genie, I, I think, is one of the best vocal performances in an animated film of all time, right? Like, I think right. that, like, yeah. if you For go sure. and listen to Friend Like Me, he is going through like eight personas every 10 seconds. It is incredible what he has accomplished with that, just that one song. Um, and yeah, and anyone by comparison is not going to measure up. Something that I think is really interesting, by the way, is that it is almost impossible to acquire or watch the original Aladdin right now. Um, like it's, really? you can't buy the Blu-ray uh, anywhere where you'd normally get a Blu-ray. It's hard to find on a video on demand service. For instance, you can't got, get it on iTunes. It's not available on Disney's movies anywhere service. Um, well, if only Disney had their own upcoming digital <laughs> service. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad I have my special platinum edition DVD. There is my... a blue diamond <laughs> edition of the Blu-ray that's selling for like twenty to fifty dollars on eBay right now. I almost thought about buying it, um, but actually, uh, a, uh, a slash filmcast listener Brian H messaged me in my distress and gave me a digital code. Uh, where I could redeem it to watch Aladdin on digital, so it it is available. Like it's it's technically possible, but it is just not readily available. Which I think, um, I, I think there could be many reasons for that. One of which is that it, there are lots of problematic elements, and I wonder if Disney was trying to avoid, you know, pieces comparing the two. Um, but also, I just think this movie is like a pale imitation of the original, as you have indicated, as you both have indicated, and. Um, and being able to compare it to the original is not flattering for the new one. Um, so anyway, I did think that was like a little interesting like digital rights uh, situation with, with the original Aladdin. But can we all agree that Naomi Scott is like MVP of this movie? I thought she was actually oh, the yeah. one good thing to come out of this new Aladdin. Yeah, um, but they don't, they don't give MVPs to the losing team, Dave. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> um, Aisha, what do you think of Naomi Scott's performance? Eh. Oh. <laughs> I, mean, she, I mean to be honest like no one could really sing in this movie <laughs> like she, she's the one all, person that could sing in my opinion but yeah i mean she was fine but like <laughs> she wasn't leah salonga who was the singing voice of jasmine in the original version um <laughs> like every like she was fine i i, I think that um she looked good and she sang a really terrible song in the best way possible. <laughs> All right. But yeah, overall, no, no one here was MB- MVP. Like <laughs> everyone, yeah. everyone lost in this, <laughs> in this enterprise. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, I think we can wrap it up there then. Um, but yeah, uh, Aisha, really appreciate you sharing your opinion with us today. Uh, Aisha Harris's new piece, uh, Rewriting the Past Won't Make Disney More Progressive, is available at NewYorkTimes.com. 
Um, and uh, Aisha, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, yeah, you can find me at thenewyorktimes.com, and you can also find me on Twitter at craftingmystyle. All right. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. You can email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, this episode was produced by Baby Zhang. You can find our theme song at adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. Jeff Kanata, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I have a new live play Dungeons and Dragons show where I'm the DM. And I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. Uh, episode five came up, uh, came out this week. And it is, I think, one of the best things I've ever been a part of. Uh, and if you, you don't have to start with episode one, you can jump right in episode five. There's a recap at the beginning. Uh, if you've never watched a Dungeons and Dragons show, don't be intimidated. It's super easy and fun to follow. It is just improvised storytelling. And if you're hankering for some more Game of Thrones style fantasy stuff, give it a watch. Uh, I hope you give it a show, give it a watch. It's on YouTube, The Dungeon Run, or you can find it as an audio podcast as well, anywhere you get podcasts. But we record them live on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Caffeine. It's caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. I just say I also do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find it at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net and follow me on Twitter at DaveChensky. Next week, we'll be reviewing Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Thanks for listening to the Sash Homecast. We'll see you later. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks from the good side, bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First-time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Side Salad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wiggington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out... Who exploded Vivian Stone? Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.